and you learn to build all your roads on today because tomorrow's ground is too uncertain for plans and futures have a way of falling down in mid-flight. And you really do learn with every goodbye you learn. Veronica A. Schofstall. Hello, welcome to Just Make the Thing. This is a podcast for people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. This poem popped into my head after I rang up Charlie Clawson this week to pick his brains about making things. Charlie is an actor who you might recognize from Aussie hit shows like Blue Healers and Home and Away, and more recently, the TV series of Wolf Creek. He is, though, also a writer in the middle of writing and producing his own film with his wife, Gemma, and is one half of the Planet Broadcasting podcast, Topop. Will Anderson and Charlie have been making their pod for years, usually chock full of ridiculous scenarios and bloody hilarious anecdotes. It's well worth listening to, and Charlie himself is always funny and self-deprecating and charismatic. This interview, however, is a different Charlie from the one that likes to talk about Batman. What eventuated from our chat was a lot of great advice from someone who's been in the media industry, creating and performing and writing for years, but also some really moving insights into what it's like to lose a parent. Charlie recorded a podcast with his mum, Eileen Clawson, when she was dying from terminal cancer. And I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes below. I highly recommend having a listen to that show. It's, um, it's a beautiful listen and really heartbreaking too. I loved listening to Eileen's wisdom. And I know that can sometimes sound corny, but in this case, it's absolutely true. I think that in talking to Charlie, you hear just how much her presence in his life has shaped his worldview and how he moves through the world, making a living as a creative with his mum's voice still in his head. Sometimes what happens when you lose someone really close to you in amongst the grief and sometimes the anger You are also given a gift, which sounds strange, but what I mean by that is that in saying goodbye to someone you love, you're taught about how short our lives really are, and that if there are things that you want to do, or see, or say, or create, well then you'd better just bloody well get to them, because no one knows how long we've got, or when our time might be up. I learnt this lesson from losing my dad but loved so much learning it again from one fiercely independent, brave mother of nine in this episode through her son, Charlie. Hello, Charlie Clawson. Hello, Claire Tonti. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We finally got onto each other. I know. Can you believe it? It's the the Chinese democracy of podcasts. (laughs) I know. It's been ridiculous. Oh, my God. And because you've been adventuring all around the world as well, so is it nice to be home? Yeah, yeah. No, it's really nice to be back. I was just uh, saying to someone before, it's you really do appreciate Australia <laughs> once you've been away from it for so long, uh, you know, especially when you spend the majority of your time in a country without, like, healthcare or massive wealth disparity and stuff. You just come back here and go, wow. Wow, it's maybe it's maybe it's good being so far away from the rest of the world. <laughs> I really am feeling that at the moment, actually, that we're kind of in this lovely spot where we're an island, so yeah. we're just that little bit harder to get to, and we've got beautiful fresh air and big blue skies, and yeah. we're a bit lucky. So yeah, yeah, I could totally relate to that for sure. <laughs> yeah, what what is it about home that you love so much? Ah, uh, well, look, it's the simple things. Uh, I'm not a complicated man. 
Um, you know, I uh, since I moved to Sydney, I mean, I, I grew up in Melbourne, mm. but uh, when I moved to Sydney for the first time, I was like, oh my god, beaches! Like this is the Australian lifestyle that you know uh, that we sell around the world, but I never really lived it. And in the kind of you know. 15, 20 years almost I've been living in Sydney on and off. I've adopted that like beach lifestyle. Like I live for summer and uh, where I live now, you know, I'm 10 minutes walk from a beautiful ocean beach. And so first thing in the morning, get up, take the dog down, go for a walk along the cliffs, breathe in that that ocean air. And it just fixes me for, for the rest of the day. It doesn't matter what I have to do, what horrible, you know, soul crushing thing I have to do that day. <laughs> As long as I can, as long as I can spend some time in the water and, and, you know, in summer go for a swim, that just, like my wife and I often just pinch ourselves. We'll, we'll dive into the ocean and we'll swim out and we'll float on our backs, look at back at the land and just be like, can you believe we get to live here? Like people go on holiday where we get to live. Like it's, it's crazy. Yeah. You're really selling Sydney for me now. Well, it's not, I mean, that's a, but that's a brilliant thing about Australia. It's not just Sydney. Like there's literally, we have, uh, 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 boundless plains to share, <laughs> but yeah. we, you know, you can really drive like uh, around, uh, like up the east coast, around down the west coast, even along the south coast, and there's just like, just miles and miles of beautiful, like unspoilt land. And so, you know, Gem and I have this kind of, uh, you know, we we sort of waver between, well, do we settle down in the city or do we, you know, we buy out somewhere, you know, in the country or you know, on a, on a quiet beach somewhere and get a bit more land. Like we have this romantic idea of having a place that's kind of you know remote and growing your own vegetables and stuff but I know what I'm like <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know four days without wi-fi I probably like go insane so yeah 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 so it's the beach for now I think that sounds yeah. like a beautiful place yeah. to a, be- be- a beach near a big city <laughs> Yeah, yeah, perfect. Oh, well, where you are sounds perfect then. It actually yeah. sounds like you're you're um, working and living in like home and away just in real life. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was like when I was doing home and away, that was just another – because I'd never been to Palm Beach, which is, you know, for people who haven't been to Sydney, it's you know, it's like an hour, an hour and 15 north of Sydney and it's – the northern beaches are, you know, beautiful part of, of New South Wales and mm. when I first got there, I was like, oh, no wonder they decided to shoot a TV series here. And no wonder it's been on air for th- 30 years <laughs> because it is amazing. Like it is one of the most beautiful parts um, of New South Wales. And it's only like an hour and 15 from the CBD. Yeah, it's amazing. I know. I'm, I mean, even, I mean, Melbourne is freezing, but even, you know, where we live, we're sort of out in the bush now at our place. And just the how easy it is to drive, you know, 20 minutes, not even walk out your front door and you're in the bush or in nature and yeah. seeing just beautiful birds and kangaroos. And mm. yeah, I know we're, we sound like we're doing a tourism ad for Australia, <laughs> don't we? Rather than a podcast about making things. But um, yeah. yeah, I guess what you surround yourself with as well when you're trying to work creatively does really affect what you make. Yeah. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to ask you because you um, obviously have been living and working in a lot making stuff and making a living from it mm. and you grew up as one of nine kids yeah do you think that the way that you grew up has kind of ended you up in the career that you're in uh yeah definitely like I think of my family I am the only one who's actively involved in a creative profession like my brother's a drama teacher you know so that is the arts but it's you know he's a teacher and 
I had a sister who was a stage manager, but you know, that's, that's like a, that's like a trade, you know, like in terms of making a living from the arts and oftentimes not making a living from the arts. Um, <laughs> That's the reality of it, isn't it? I, I am kind of the outlier in my family and I think a lot of that had to do with my mum. My, my father was a dentist and, and you know, she was a, a, a housewife, you know, nine kids to look after. And then my father passed away when I was 12 and most of my older siblings had moved out by then. So it was mum and I had a pretty close relationship and she at that stage of her life you know she was sort of moving out of the phase of you know she no longer had a husband her husband had passed away she was moving out of the phase of being mum because you know her youngest was sort of in his teens now and so she started to re- go through this sort of change herself like she started to have to rediscover herself because she'd been a housewife for virtually and a mother for 30 something years Mm. Um, and so she had this, you know, like a bit of a Saturn Returns kind of moment where she's like, well, who am I and what do I want to do with my life? And she'd always been very artistic and creative um, as a young woman. Mm. And then, you know, uh, life had gotten in the way, 30, 40 years of life had gotten in the way. So she um, started to rediscover her uh, artistic side. You know, she's a quite, uh, an, she was quite an amazing painter, Um and so she just started painting all the time. Like I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, mum would bribe me to sit for her for, you know, portraits and, you know, she'd be in the backyard doing still lifes. And so I think through her making that discovery, she was very encouraging of me to follow my bliss in a way. Like my father, although he was a dentist, from what I understand, hated being a dentist. It was a job he took because he was very smart and his parents wanted him to get a, a real job, mm. but it was not something that he loved doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember being like four or five years old and going to visit him at his surgery and, you know, watching him uh, treating a, a, a particularly uh, difficult patient who, you know, wouldn't open their mouth and was like squirming in the chair and dad being very patient with them. And then I saw him walk out of the treatment room and into his office and he sort of held a cushion up against the wall and punched it three or four times <laughs> oh, to God. let off some steam and then oh, went man. back in and, you know, very calm. He's like, okay, let's try again, just open your mouth. And so, you know, that was his day, day in and day out for mm-hmm. his entire adult life. And I think that my father would have loved to have maybe done something different. You know, mum always thought that he, you know, would have loved to have just been an academic, uh, you know, a guy who studied and wrote papers and you know, maybe he's got a few different degrees or PhDs because he was a you know, very bright man, but, you know, he, he had this job. And so, you know, mum's philosophy with me was always, well, you naturally, as a kid, I had a natural inclination for writing, you know, creative writing um, and that kind of stuff. And so she encouraged me to do it. You know, she was just, I think her idea was she wanted me to be a journalist. That was my earliest memory of, you know, her uh, discussing her career with me. And then, you know, that became like maybe you should do law or something, but she was always well. Mum, mum was she was very hands off in a lot of ways. Like her philosophy was, if you love something, you'll do it. You know, so she wasn't going to drive me to football practice or drive me to you know drama or drive me to any of my extracurricular activities. I would have to get the bus there. Or I'd have to work out how I'd get there myself, or you know, get a friend's parent to give me a lift. So. You know, she was well into like her retirement of being a mother by the time she got to me. Um, well, she had nine kids, you know. You sort nine of can't, kids. Yeah, you yeah, have to do totally. that. 
and and also like she'd seen she had gone through that thing of following her every child every child's whim and taking them to ballet and piano lessons and seeing the kid drop out after you know six months or whatever so by the time she got to me she was like look if you love it you'll do it i i'll encourage you and i won't stand in your way but you know mm. it's got to be something you pursue so that was an influence definitely growing up and you know i grew up in a house with a lot of art and you know um art literate discussions and you know my brother was a drama teacher and all this kind of stuff so it was always you know it was always in and around the family I don't think anyone thought I'd become an actor I didn't even think I'd become an actor that was just you might as well have wanted to be an astronaut we didn't know any like we didn't know any actors or and so I just sort of I had a teacher in year when I was going into my final year of high school because I was always good at art subjects humanities things like that but struggled a bit more with maths and science but I was pers persisting with them because I thought I had to. And then I had this teacher um, the year before I started year 12 and she was like, look, why don't you just pick the subjects you like? I mean, you know, it's going to be a long year. Why don't you just like, <laughs> you know, drop the sciences if you don't like them and, you know, they're a burden and, and just pick all humanities. And it was the best advice I ever got because I really enjoyed my last year of high school. I just picked all subjects like media, English, English literature, history, all the stuff that I was interested in. And um, consequently did quite well, you know, like got good marks. And I, I do remember like the school assembly at the start of year 12, the teacher getting up and saying, uh, one of the vice principals getting up and talking about the Mickey Mouse subjects like drama and media, like all the subjects <laughs> that I had picked, like, you know, not being worthwhile. And, you know, I was a bit kind of like, oh, shit, you know, am I setting myself up for, you know, a life of disappointment or whatever? But I just think that it's like anything. You pick a creative career, you still it's still a job. It's a fun job and it can be incredibly rewarding. But I think what I've you know, what I understand about it is I sacrifice security and surety for freedom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's a, that's actually a really huge thing to sacrifice because it takes a lot of guts to, yeah. to do that. Well, I talked I've talked to friends about this before. You know, a friend of mine, um, you know, got a job straight out of high school and has been in that same job for twenty years and, you know, he has a house and, you know, kids and, you know, really stable life and uh and I was saying to him once, like, I'm really envious. Like I wish I'd had the discipline or the application to just get a job and, you know, save and buy a house and, you know, <laughs> put my kids through school. <laughs> And he was looking at me going, I wish I'd had the courage to kind of, you know, pursue my writing and, and do, you know, and, and travel more and have more life experiences. So it's, it is that thing of the grass is always greener. I don't know. It, I guess it just depends on what your value system is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I was saying, my, my mother, my mother's value system was very much about, you know, just do what you enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, you'll be happier that way. I mean, I don't, people who have nine to five jobs, like I'm all for that if that's what you're into and there's people who love their jobs. It just wasn't, wasn't for me. Mm, yeah. I, I listened to the podcast episode with your mum when she was dying of cancer and I, mm. she just, oh, I know this is quite deep to just jump in, but she just sounded <laughs> like right. the wisest woman. I just, oh God, I just would have loved to have met her and ask her questions because she just sounded so wise. What was it about your mum that you think made her that way or was she always that way, that kind of wise and deep perspective um, on things? It's funny. Like I think I think the cancer, going through the cancer gave her a lot of perspective and put her into a position where she had to think about a lot of that stuff. Mm. It's funny. Like I don't know if it's just me or if we 
all do it with our parents, but you can be fairly dismissive of your parents, mm. take them for granted, or you can filter out a lot of the things that they say because it's just like, oh, that's mum. She's a, of course she's going to say that. But um, the same discovery you had listening to that podcast with my mum, I was having recording that podcast with my mum. Mm. I mean, we'd always had a good relationship, but you know, we used to tease mum all us kids, like we used to call her voodoo because, you know, she was very much into kind of new age philosophies and she was a real searcher and, you know, she meditated every day. The last 20 years of her life, she meditated every day, twice a day. She kept journals. She tried all different kinds of um, self-development courses and things like that. Um, at the time, like especially when I was a cynical younger man and single, cynical teenager, I used to think it was just all – lame (laughs) like it's just lame hippie shit you know I used to get annoyed with her because she wouldn't I I, I used to view her as being kind of indecisive and wishy-washy because she had a very flexible philosophical take on everything Mm. but in retrospect I look back at it and I realize oh she was just picking her battles she just was choosing what deserved her energy Mm. And I think a lot of that was the experience of, you know, she, you know, she lost a, a daughter. She lost a husband. Like in the space of a 12-year period, my mum lost her daughter, lost her husband, lost her mother. Oh you know, God. which, you know, that, that's, that's more than enough heartbreak for one person to go through. And not only that, but then she still had eight kids uh, mm. to look after and, and be a mother to. So I think she came to the realisation that she can't give all the time to everyone and everything. You know, she can't sweat the small stuff. She had to pick what her what what was important to her and that was where, you know, her energy would go. Mm. And, yeah, I think I didn't realise that. I mean, I, I often um, – I, I did, uh, you know, the Women of Letters, The um, they do uh, – in Melbourne, it's where women get up and, and, and read letters and they sometimes invite men to come uh, read some letters as well. Marie Cardi and Angie Hart, it's a, a thing they put on in Melbourne. And mm-hmm. I did a letter last year where I wrote a letter to my mum because the idea being that if I had one more day with her, I would want to tell her all these wonderful things that I have learnt and discovered through her passing. And it's ironic that she kind of had to go through what she went through in order for me to discover it yeah but she had to as well you know what i mean it, it's one of those it's, it's one of those catch-22s i guess you know if, if she hadn't got the cancer and if she hadn't been forced to examine her life you know maybe she wouldn't have come to those realizations but um mm. you know i've gone through a lot of her journals since she's passed away and they're really amazing like you know to sort of see a woman around she would have been late 50s early 60s when i moved out of home and so she had to work out who she was, like redefine herself. Like she had no identity beyond being a mother and a wife for 30 plus years. Mm. That's pretty scary to go into the world and go, who am I? Like, yeah. you know, like she, in one of these journals, she's keeping, um, she and my sister did this amazing drive around Australia for a year. They were in a, a combi van. <laughs> And she kept this journal and, you know, she struggles every day with giving herself permission to just sit on the beach and not have to worry about what's going on and checking with her kids and all that kind of stuff. Like she had to unlearn all that stuff and go, you know what, it's absolutely okay for me to have my own time. In fact, you know, in her last 10 years of life or so, mum was so protective of her quiet time and her alone time. She was, 
I used to worry that she was lonely living on her own <laughs> until like you'd go and visit her and she couldn't wait for you to leave. She just relished having that house to herself so she could listen to her radio shows and read her books and just think and meditate and paint like all those kind of good things. So she was a wise woman. I just don't think I realized it at the time. Yeah. What lessons have you learned from her passing, I guess, and just her life as a person? What do you take to your life now? Well, meditation. I've been meditating every day uh, the last couple of years. Every morning I'll get up and meditate um, for about 20 minutes or so. And I saw the way she accepted death. You know, when she made the decision to stop the chemotherapy and then in the, her last few days of, of, of life, she was fine with it. You know what I mean? Like, of course, you know, the last two days of, of someone passing away is pretty horrendous. But in terms of what she was conscious of and her awareness, like she was ready, you know, she 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 accepted it and she was ready to let go. And that's the big lesson is that, you know, we're all going to die at some point and can fear it or you can just give into it. It's a very sort of like um, yogic or Buddhist principle, this acceptance. It's very hard and, you know, it's it, you know, it can sometimes feel unjust or unfair. But that's the, the one thing is just to let go of things, not to hold on to especially negative stuff, try and forgive a bit more, forgive myself, forgive other people, which is not easy, you know. Like we all have egos. We all get scared and, 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 and confused. And, you know, my natural reaction, I think, generally is to be defensive or to be a smart ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Crack some jokes and not take stuff too crack seriously. Crack jokes. Yeah, yeah. Be, be self-deprecating, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. I think the harder thing is to just be honest with yourself. And, you know, I mean, I'm very lucky. I've got a great wife, um, you know, wonderful family, great friends, you know. Uh, so I have the best support network. But there are people who don't have that. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, my philosophy or my way is the right way or the only way, but it, de it definitely works for me. And the other thing I guess that uh, I, I learned from her is she actually said to me um, the last time I saw her, the only two things, and this is appropriate for your podcast, <laughs> so the only two things you leave behind are the relationships you make and the things that you create because mm -hmm. no one remembers how big your house was or how many cars you had or how much money was in the bank. All that stuff goes, it disappears, it just, you know, Flitters away. You know, when we had, when we were packing up mum's place and we got an auction house to come through and value all her belongings to, to sell what we couldn't give away, we were going to sell. And, you know, she had her like her priceless crystal and her priceless silverware that we'd only bring out at Christmas. And the guy looked at it and he's like, <laughs> oh, that's 200 bucks. And oh, we're like, God. no, 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 you don't understand. That's mum's crystal. And yeah. he's like, yeah, but people pass away every day. We get, offers for this all the time it's it's 200 bucks and so it was really like it kind of made me think fuck yeah like all this stuff that we Accumulate. sweat about owning or bringing into our lives you know it all just goes in the end mm. um you know we've sold our mum's place it's gone someone else lives there now you know all her we kept a few keepsakes mainly a lot of her artwork and her journals and a few things that meant something to us but the rest of it's gone she didn't want us to hold on to any of that stuff she didn't you know, she was not a sentimental person in that regard. She wanted us to go on and live our lives. And so, yeah, relationships and what you create and, you know, and what you can create doesn't just have to be artistic. It can be anything. It can be, you know, like a community group. It can be, mm. you know, a book club. It can be anything. But I, I understand 
I understand what she she's talking about. Yeah. Because I, I just, it just strikes me that your mum, and I think she's given you that amazing gift too of being awake in your life. Mm-hmm. You know how some people sort of walk around not really aware that they've got this limited time and that we are all going to die and it all sounds really <laughs> like direct. Like I talk about this and people get really morbid and think I'm being really dark. But yeah. I think actually knowing that it's final gives you a sense of sort of purpose and urgency that, yeah, I've got to make stuff and, and get over my own failings and yes. and not sweat so much if it's not so good. Do you struggle with self-doubt with the things oh, that you course. make? All the time. Uh, yeah, all, all the time. Like I have, I have a hard drive filled with, you know, unproduced scripts and ideas, you know. I really, I guess perfectionism is also like an anxiety disorder. You know, there's an idea that you cannot show something until it's just right, you know, but it's really just a way of you dealing with anxiety. You know, you're worried about being judged. And, you know, that's a big issue for me that I try and deal with is the idea of like, what will people think? Is this a waste of time? Do I have any talent, you know? And and it's uh, it's hard. Like, it's hard. I think that's the creative curse. I mean... You know, I talk to Gemma about it all the time. You know, Gemma started off as a fine artist, you know, painting and drawing, and then she moved into graphic design, and then she uh, went to film school, and now she's a film director. And, you know, when I talk to her about my frustrations around, you know, I've written something and it sucks, or I've produced something and it sucks, which is like, but that is the creative process. That is what happens. No one gets it right the first time. Like, maybe some people do, Mm. but... There is a process to it. Like I've only just made this discovery after sort of 10 years of sort of writing, writing seriously and, and having this, these film scripts and, and uh, other things that I've written is that the process of writing is about making mistakes. That's really how you get to the result. That's the hard part though is that you have to make the mistake and you've just got to stay the course because, you know, I've, I've rewritten things a hundred times and every time I'm like, I obviously have no talent because I would have solved this by now. But sometimes you have to make a hundred mistakes before you hit on the idea that works. You know, another great bit of advice I got was from someone who said, there are no great ideas. There's only ideas and then how much work you're willing to put into them. Mm, that's massive. Yeah. And it's, look, and, and that's all well and good to say. It doesn't fix how horrible that feeling of, I have to come up with a solution. And I don't know what it is and I've come up with stuff and it doesn't feel right. And like, you don't know if you'll ever get it right. You know, that's why I think it's important to maybe have a few things going at once, you know, like not just in one discipline, but like maybe there's a few things you can do. Um, it's also important to take breaks, <laughs> you know, yeah. not to stare at the same same thing forever. Yeah, go to Europe for a while and um, yeah. blow some steam, wear a kilt. Well, Feel, yeah, exactly. Fill the tanks. Fill the tanks. I mean, that. I mean, I know we're joking, but that honestly, I've done two trips to the UK in the past six months, and they've both been really important for that. Like, I was, I went to LA in November last year with the idea. It was quiet for, for auditions, so I was like, great, I can stay in a friend's apartment. I'll have it to myself, and I can just bash out this new film script that I wanted to write. So I did that. You know, and bashed out like a, a first draft and then was like, oh, God, like, I, you know, I just hated it and felt like I'd wasted my time. And, and LA as a city can be quite, it can be quite disorientating because it sort of doesn't have a center to it. 
you know, it's not like you can just walk around. Like it's, it's so big, you sort of have to drive from one place to the other. It, it can, you know, you can sort of feel a bit lost there. And I was feeling a bit depressed, to be honest. Like I just sort of had, didn't feel like I'd achieved what I wanted to when I got there. Didn't feel stimulated by where I was. And so Gemma and I were meant to go to the UK to visit her mother for Christmas. But then Gemma got called back to Australia to, to shoot a commercial. And I had this ticket to London. And so she said, why don't you just go to London and then you've got Europe on your doorstep. It's only like, you know, $80 plane ride to anywhere in Europe. So I went to Amsterdam for eight days and literally just spent the eight days walking around looking at things, going to art galleries, seeing bands, uh, taking in architecture, antique shops. And it was the perfect antidote. Like it's it's exactly what I needed because it just, I got away, I got out of that kind of cycle of you suck, you're a loser, (laughs) you know, you wasted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. What are you even doing? It all looks stupid. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the creative process does feel like, you know, squeezing an orange or something like you, you're trying to wring your brain out for like a solution, and sometimes like it's it, you just need to to back off and then go do something completely different and draw inspiration from something that you would never think of doing. You know, like I think the worst thing that I could have done would be to watch a bunch of movies and work out what was wrong with my movie. I think that it wouldn't have been enough distance, but yeah. you know, to go to another country you know, where I didn't really understand the language and just go to like the Van Gogh Museum or, you know, just check out a bunch of galleries and stuff and, and, and just, I mean, I'm, I'm not a sophisticated individual. <laughs> like my, my <laughs> understanding of like art and art history is limited. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me because you listen to the Weekly Planet. So <laughs> not overly sophisticated, <laughs> no, those two boys no, not are. not overly sophisticated. <laughs> no. Uh, but I can appreciate uh, doing something different, like um, just sort of changing changing your setting, changing things up. Yeah, kind of stewing in some art and some ideas and soaking all of yeah. that in there somewhere is really important. Well, just just Whedon talks about that. Like he does, he, you know, he calls it filling the tanks. Just Whedon, mm. um, you know, when he was, I think, cutting the Avengers, he had a two-week break. And so he went, got his friends together and they shot, um, I think it was As You Like It or one of the, one of the Shakespeare plays. Mm. They just shot it in two weeks just at his house, just got a bunch of friends together and just because he was cutting this giant, you know, comic book blockbuster film and he just needed to do something different. I think that's such amazing advice. I know that's kind of what James did too before he, well, obviously he just watches and listens to so many podcasts and, and mm. film and TV and just – that all of that kind of somehow when you cram it all into your brain, it it's like fuel or something, isn't it, for the way that yeah. you end up then creating stuff. Welcome to Primates, a podcast about primates in popular culture from Chimpan A all the way down to Chimpan Z. I'm Australian comedian Matt Stewart and I'm going to be joined by great mates from around the Planet Broadcasting Network and the comedy world to talk about movies TV shows and other such things featuring monkeys, great apes, and the not-so-great apes. We'll be talking about movies like Planet of the Apes, King Kong, and that one where Matt LeBlanc plays baseball with a chimp. Probably, I guess. I mean, how do you avoid a classic like that? Anyway, come check us out. Primates is the name of it. And we're right here on the Planet Broadcasting Network. How do you go about, you know, once you finish the script, what do you do? 
once you've written it? Well, this has been a seven or eight year process. The script has changed quite a lot. Gemma and I used to have our own production company. We used to make you know, music videos and short films and low-budget TV commercials and that kind of stuff. And after like three or four years of that, I would, Gemma would direct, I would write and produce. And after three or four years of that, we were like, why don't we just make a film? Like we seem to be doing all these little jobs. Why don't we just sort of, you know, mm. time is a one-day shoot by 24 days and you've got a feature film. So, And we were just going to raise as much money as we could and go out and shoot it for cheap. But turns out it's quite hard to raise money, <laughs> you know, especially for a feature film. And so we went along, you know, with one group of producers trying that way. And the whole time I'd be like tweaking the script, working on it, trying to improve it. And then that stalled um, for a period. And then another producer came along who was a bit more established and had worked within the Australian um, funding body system. And she read it and she really loved it. So she was able to trigger some development funding from Screen Australia. And so that's when it sort of started getting quite serious because it's like, oh, all of a sudden now there is money invested in this and you are sharing drafts with people. We just, look, the thing about making a film, I sound so exhausted, I don't mean to, but <laughs> the thing about making a film is there are so many moving parts. Mm. So you're trying to work all this stuff out and it takes so long that suddenly one of your sales agents drops out. So you've got to find a new sales agent, then you find a new one, but then your lead actress drops out. So you, then you have to find it and it just... It's like spinning plates. So we, you know, we've had numerous versions of this film. I mean, I, they say on average in Australia, it takes 10 years to make your first film. Wow. That's so long. Like it took 10 years to make Animal Kingdom. Uh, it just, it's just hard. And the thing is too, um, you know, you are, Gemma's a first time feature film director. I'm a first time feature film writer. You know, there's just a lot of, there's just a lot of hoops you have to jump through. So I can understand you know, how people get dissuaded from doing it because you sort of ask yourself, well, you know, what what is all this effort for? It can be really disheartening because the other thing is when you make a film, it's such a collaborative effort. You can't control every single element. You know, you are relying on your crew to be on their game and your cast to be on their game and for the um, distribution to, to market the film correctly. There's so many things that could go right or wrong. It's actually a miracle when you see a film come out and it's just, does really well like it yeah. there you know and i and i'm a huge supporter of australian film but i sort of i get defensive when people like slag off australian film because i'm like if you knew the restrictions with people what people are working with yeah. sometimes films do go into production before they're ready because people are just so nervous about well if we wait any longer we might lose this person or that person you know if you've got your private finance raise and Screen Australia are willing to kick in the final amount, fuck, maybe you should just go for it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Maybe you should yeah. just see if you can make it on the fly. So, Yeah. Gosh. I've, I sort of hadn't really thought about it like that in film, that it's the just this sheer number of people and kind of stars that have to align to create an incredible film. Like I love the film Two Hands. Yeah. And you just wonder – God, how does it, how much of it is up to kind of fate and the gods and, you know, or how many films out there have been written by really talented people and there's, yeah. you know, so much that or, potential, or, you know. Or even like, you know, don't get made. Like I would, I mean, not mm. just Australia, but, you know, when I was in LA, I was talking to this producer who told me about this amazing script that he had written by like a famous writer, a guy, you know, who, who's had lots of films made and, 
the concept was brilliant and they had big stars attached and they were ready to go. And then at the last minute, the studio head got fired. New guy comes in. This, this, that's it. Done. Just gets locked in a vault somewhere. Oh. You know, and that was four years of his life, two years of the writer's life. And that film will never see the light of day, most likely. And that happens all the time. You know, like they, there are just a million reasons why your film can or, or, or can't get made. You know, like I, we're in a good position with our film. Like every, everything we have is sort of lined up where, you know, I'm really happy with the script where it's at. Everything that I'm doing on it now is just really tweaks, polishing. Mm. Um, but who knows? Who knows what could happen, you know? Or we could make it and then it, no one goes and sees it. Like, or, you know, there's yeah, just so there's much to so consider. so many variables, but, yeah. But then I guess, you know, when you're talking about the creative process, that's not, that's not my thing to worry about at this point. You know, my all I'm worrying about right now is, is this script the best script it could be? You know, that's why I've, you know, rewritten it a dozen times is because it's like, you know, do I want it to be good? But also over the course of eight years, my tastes change, you know, the way I express myself changes, you know, the things that I believe change. So the character that I wrote eight years ago is not reflective of the person I am now. Mm. Um, and that's really interesting too. Like that script I was telling you about that I wrote in November, I wrote it and was like, oh, it's awful. Like <laughs> threw it in a drawer. <laughs> Never show anyone that again. And then I went back over to the States again at the start of this year and I decided to write a – a second draft, but fresh without sort of, you know, I wasn't going to write over the, the first draft. So then I wrote a second draft. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> like this is terrible as well. Throw it in a drawer, we'll never show anyone. And then, you know, I went on holiday for a, a few weeks with Jem, went to her brother's wedding in Scotland, and then came back to Australia. And just out of curiosity, I opened my computer and, and read that first draft again. And you know what? I really liked it. <laughs> God, isn't that amazing? It's it's like you just needed to get distance from it. Yes, a hundred percent. And and also like I imagine that while I was writing it, I probably was thinking a bit too far down the line about like oh like how are you going to shoot this or mm. is anyone going to want to see this? And it's like well that's that's not that's not for me to worry about right now. Right now, I'm just trying to craft the story that I want to tell and. You know, I used to, as an actor, I used to think that I never went to drama school or anything like that. And I used to be convinced that there was just some trick to acting, you know, that all those actors who went to NIDA or, you know, uh, Whopper or whatever, they just, they learnt this secret formula. And that's you know, why they were so good because they could just, you know, bring out the secret formula. And, and it's same with writing. I was like, oh, like all those writers is just some, you know, secret, secret formula to it. And then... What I've come to realize is it's really not <laughs> a secret formula. <laughs> There's just how you do it. There's just your process and what works for you. You know, for instance, yeah. with writing, there is a school of thought that you must map everything out, you know, know where your story is going. You must know the ending. Otherwise, where are you headed? But then there's another school of thought that is like, well, if you know where it's going to go, you're tying yourself to a predetermined path. You're not allowing yourself to discover mo th moments within the writing and your audience will most likely be able to guess where it's going because, you know, you can guess where it's going. Try and surprise yourself. Mm. And so I've just sort of like done both now. Uh, Blackwood is a very mapped out, planned script. Knew where it was going to finish up. So, you know, just charted every beat and turn and then tried to sort of play within that field. And then this new one that I'm writing – I just sat down with no plan. I just tried to imagine the movie in my mind and just write what I could see. 
you know, and I know James interviewed Lee Winnell a few weeks ago, and, and I've spoken to Lee about this quite a bit. And, you know, he just loves concepts. Like, that's where he starts is like, what's a cool idea for a film? <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he, doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't know what the subtext is or the thematics or whatever. He's just like, wouldn't it be cool that there was a you know, quadriplegic who had a chip in his body that could make him walk again? What would that be like, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Joss Whedon talks about um, he just writes the scenes that he likes first. He loves writing dialogue, so he'll write all the dialogue scenes first and then he'll go back and fill in all the kind of big print. You know, so if anyone's like me, they probably go like, oh, well, there must be a set formula and I'll read all the screenwriting books and, you know, I'll follow the, the plan and, and that's the way I'll be a writer. And it's like, well, that great stuff, that stuff's great to know. Mm. But uh, ultimately, it's, it's, how, it's how you want to do it. For instance, I know that I write better after 10 p.m. You know, like I, I try and write during the day and I can get some work done. But there's just something about late night writing that it just flows much better for me. You know, that's when my best stuff comes out. You know, I'll write very slowly from, say, like midday till about 6 p.m., have dinner, write very slowly from 6 to about 10, and then I will double my page count from 10 till 3. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really weird. It's almost like I have to go through that long, slow grind during the day, you know, fighting the urge to check my emails, fighting the urge to check Twitter. Yeah. As long as I can just stay in my chair and look at that computer screen, even if I only write one or two pages, if I can make it to 10 p.m., then another five pages will flow out really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of imagining you like squirreled away with like beads of sweat, kind of like manically staring at a, at a computer <laughs> screen or something till like three in the morning. Yeah. Well, you get in the flow. Like it's, it's, it, it is one of those things where it's like the first two or three hours are absolutely excruciating. Because, mm. The temptation is always to go back and read what you've written previous, which is just death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't do that. Don't read the previous day's work or at least read like the half a page just so you know where you're at. Mm. It's just hard to battle that self-doubt. Mm. Is this the way it should sound? Is the, You know, the key is just to keep going, just to keep going, keep putting stuff down because it's always easy to go back and edit, mm. rewrite, mm. but the hard, the hard stuff is just getting it out there. I mean, I wrote – 13 pages last night for a new thing that I'm, I'm making next week. And it was funny because I hadn't put the pressure on myself that it needed to be perfect because what, what we're doing, me and some friends, uh, is, is it's going to be mostly improvised. But I sort of said to them, let me write a script so we have a baseline to work off and then, you know, we can, we can ad-lib off that. And because I had that kind of freedom, I wrote so easily. Like I managed to write like 13 pages really easily because – I was like, well, this will do. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. You just have to get it done. So just churn it out. and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, funnily enough, I, I was um, seeing a, a therapist a couple of years ago and we discussed this, the whole creative process thing. And she actually gave me that advice that I didn't listen to. <laughs> but she, I, you know, I sort of told her that like, you know, I, I get tie myself in knots about whether or not something's right or am I wasting my time. And, and so her suggestion was, well, why don't you just write without any expectations like why don't you just the first three pages you write just for fun just to get it out like give yourself the freedom to just write like that mm. and i just promptly ignored that advice for three <laughs> last three years until like, <laughs> last night uh i'm not sure if any of your guests uh your previous guests have ever talked about the artist's way no never it's a book that actually funnily enough my mother um 
read, but it's just a personal development course that you can do that is all about unlocking your creativity and the, ba- the, the basic tenets of it. So it's a 12-week course and each week there are just little exercises that you are meant to do during the week just to kind of help, I guess, cultivate your creative side. And one of the basic principles of it is this thing called morning pages. And that is you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do is you grab a notepad and you just stream of consciousness, fill up three pages of your notepad. So even if you don't have anything to say, you literally write, I have nothing to say. You just keep that pen moving across your notepad until you fill three pages. And the idea behind that is it's sort of, you're getting past your filter, that self-doubt, you know, any of the kind of, uh, uh, you, you, you know, any, any of the sort of restrictions or guards that pop up over the course of a day, you try and get the jump on them. Um, the other thing that you do during a week is you have to set yourself one artist date. And an artist date can be anything. It just has to be something that you have never done before. So it might be you might decide to walk home from work one particular day because you've never walked home and you just take note of the things on, on, on your walk home or you know, you might visit an antique store that you drive past every day that you've you've always been curious about. Or, you know, you might sign up for like a, a guitar lessons or something. You just do one thing a week for twelve weeks that is completely out of your wheelhouse just to kind of see what happens. And then within you know, those two basic principles of the artist state and the morning pages, there's a bunch of other exercises, you know, you can do. But uh, my mother did it. I know a bunch of artists who have done it. I did it um, a couple of years ago and it's really worthwhile. Like I, I still implement the morning pages from time to time. You know, when I was in LA for the first four months of this year, every morning I'd get up and I'd, I'd write my uh, three pages and it was just a way to kind of, you know, get your head out of that conscious self-doubting mode Mm. and it is and it's kind of great i mean i go back and i read some of those journals i have like a stack of them some of them are like you know the scribblings of a (laughs) madman yeah but there's also some quite interesting truths in there you know some stuff that you know you haven't filtered out that you 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 know you can use Mm. um you know and what it what it is you're choosing to create yeah because i don't know if you've ever ever experienced this but i went because i've i love writing but i i have mm-hmm. a real block when it comes to it i sort of also hate it like it's sort of that idea <laughs> of eating your vegetables or doing exercise yeah. and once you're in the flow of it it's okay but the thought of it every day yeah. i kind of hate do you have that yes or do you love it yes no no i mean i guess it's sort of similar to what i was saying to you before about the first three hours of agony yeah but then once the flow happens it's it, it's great i like writing like i you know i not not just creative writing but you know um you know i'll help Gemma with a lot of the treatments that she writes when she's pitching on jobs you know she'll give me a brief and you know i'll go away and i'll I mean, I guess it is kind of creative writing, but it's with more of a commercial kind of intent. Mm. I like words, you know, and I like forming sentences and stuff. Mm. Uh, but I think maybe, and I don't know, I'm no psychologist, Claire, but maybe the reason you hate it is because of the expectations you're putting on yourself. Mm. You know, maybe there is a judgment there. Like, I don't know, maybe the, the artist's way would be a good thing for you to do because it really is not about necessarily the content of your writing it's just more about the act of writing and what that 
freeze up in you. Mm. Um, I know with my mother's journals, like when you read them, like they're very meditative or confessional. I don't know what the right word is, but they're very revealing to an, to an outsider. Mm. She really explores like a lot of her ideas and her feelings about things because, you know, have you ever done that thing where you're stressed out by a decision and so you'll write down the pros and cons and there's something very um, relieving about that. It's almost like you get those voices out of your head and you put them down on paper. You know, you can see them in front of you. Suddenly it doesn't feel as confusing. You can say, okay, well, you know, there's four good points and, and five bad points or, or whatever it is. Mm. I think sometimes with writing, if you aren't trying to craft the perfect sentence in your head or the perfect verse or whatever it is you're writing, but you just write and then you can go back and, and, and change things, it's, it, it, it might it might help you. I mean, what do you think your fear is about or your hatred? Exactly what you were saying. I think there's a lot of self-criticism, I reckon, and the mm. and fear. I think that, I mean, don't they always say that everything comes back to love or fear at the end, at the, end of the day? Right. So it's the fear of not, of it not being good enough. I think, yeah, that that's a huge thing. And just, mm. yeah, I think that must be part of it. Maybe there's a bit of innate laziness <laughs> too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's much. And you're, yeah. and you've got like a business to run and a, and a child. Like, there's lots of reasons not to. I mean, I there's nothing that makes me happier than you know when I've you know when I'm dreading a writing session and then Jem lets me off the hook by saying, "Why don't we just you know sit on the couch and watch a film or." You know, why don't we have dinner instead or something like that? I'm like, yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I have to live a life. I'm, uh, you know, see you later, blank page. I've, I've got something else I need to do. Yeah, that's um, that's I'm that's my biggest thing. I just feel like my days being busy. I love being busy and doing lots mm. of other things. I always find it much easier to do all of that other stuff and support other people's creativity because I'm fascinated by, mm. you know, how people make stuff. And James, you know, that's how we work as a team. And I, I want to ask you a bit about how you and Gemma work together. Yeah. But, yeah, it's much easier to support other people's creativity and then kind of jump in there and have to do it yourself, oh, you know. A hundred percent. So much. Because there's no risk yes. in that. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm the same as you. Like – I'm the biggest supporter of all my friends' endeavors. When any of my friends tell me about something that they want to do, I always envision that it's going to be amazing and successful and I'm so excited for them and I, you know, I want to help them out. But I can never apply that same level of optimism and encouragement to myself. In fact, it's almost the complete opposite. I'm apologetic about what I do. It's kind of weird too. Like I, it's not fair on my friends um, or people in my life, but – I have assigned them in my brain, in my mind. My, I have assigned them a critical voice that they have not, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Like <laughs> my fear of showing them something is what will they say? I don't know why I have saddled them with this persona where they're going to be super critical of me. I mean, I wouldn't be critical of them, <laughs> but for some reason I can't imagine that they'd have the same generosity with me and it, and it kind of it puts fear in me it's, it's a weird thing yeah it definitely is how do you go showing Gemma stuff oh uh, she's she's good like I mean we, we have to be careful with each other because you know we've been together a long time and there is a tendency to be blunt mm. you know maybe not as not as gentle as you might be with a like a, another friend I mean we're also very encouraging of each other we we are each other's biggest fans mm. um 
which is which is really great you know like and i think we work we work well together so i offer sheet gem is my first port of call with nearly everything that i create not so much comedy like that's not really her bag like tofop and you know uh, the other football podcast and you know the other sort of comedy centered stuff i do with my friends like she likes comedy but it's just not she's not as interested in that as she is with the other stuff so but yeah, no, she's she's very good as a sounding board for me as well. Like there's two things that she's great with is she's got a very kind of critical, um, she's got a critical mind. So she, you don't feel like, you know, she's just encouraging you for the sake of encouragement. But also she's a visual artist, you know, that's her training and that's her career. And so she's very good at getting me to see things visually like i tend to be much more of a words kind of guy mm. and she's very good at saying have you thought of maybe how this might look or what an image of that might look like you know film really is about showing not telling so the more you can do visually the better so that's you know she's really good at that where i might you know have a three-page scene which she can condense down into like three shots because she's like well you know, if you want to show someone's lost their faith, why don't you have a shot of a broken crucifix as opposed to, you know, yeah, like yeah. three pages of dialogue about someone establishing that they've lost their faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a real joy in working in a couple in that way as sort of having someone who you trust so much and can be so honest with and respect their work. But do you find also there are times where you have to make time not to talk about work or about creative stuff or is it all just in the uh, mix for you? Yeah. It used to be worse when we had the production company. That's all we did because it was very hand-to-mouth and we were generating all the work and you know, we would be sitting opposite each other at the dinner table like emailing each other, not even talking, like <laughs> yeah. sending emails back and forth. Yeah, look, James and I do that now. Yeah, yeah. and so That's and so that can. I mean, look, it was never a, it was never a burden. It's just that you know you do lose a bit of that kind of romance or the kind of um, relief of being able to leave work in an office or something. Mm. But then you know, like when I did when I was on home and away, you know, I had it that was the equivalent of a nine to five job, and so we got a we did get a break. You know, we we've we had like a f- almost five year break, but um, no, I think we we we're very good at compartmentalizing now. Like that trip to the UK that I've just been on was all about, you know, it had been a nonstop solid chunk of work, and then you know we we worked pretty much over our entire Christmas holidays when we were in Europe, which was a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> you know, pitched, pitched on pitched on three jobs, and you know we we're riding treatments in hotel rooms and trains and stuff, and. You know, sort of felt like we had sacrificed a bit of the holiday. Mm. So this trip, we had a firm rule of, you know, not not going to pitch for any work on this one. No, if you have some ideas, just jot them down. But let's not, you know, actively pursue work. Let's not do that. So there is a yeah, yeah. You, fill the tank. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning. I'm learning a lot from you, Shelley Clawson. Because I could talk to you about so much more stuff. We'll have to have you on again. Yeah, anytime. Yeah, I guess one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was Tofop, obviously, because that's yep. one of our podcasts on our network. Good plug. Yeah, just a big plug. They're all. It's awesome, <laughs> hilarious. What is your favorite thing about making the podcast with Will? I guess it. It actually sort of relates to the writing thing. It's the freewheeling nature of it, you know. Like Will and I are quite honest about the fact that 
if we didn't have the podcast, we probably wouldn't talk as much as we do. You know, in a, it was kind of the reason we started the podcast was a reason to catch up, you know, like we actually had a, a reason to get together and, and chat and, you know, like it's such a hard podcast to describe to people. We're terrible at selling it <laughs> because it feels very indulgent. It's literally two friends getting together and just shooting the breeze, you know, and, mm. and, and, and just whatever amuses them. And okay, I'd say this, there's the freewheeling nature of it. I do love when we're on song and we just follow an idea to its ridiculous end like that. To me, I just get so much joy out of that. Like I, I really enjoy those conversations where they just get yeah. weirder and more convoluted and, you know, we just take a hypothetical and expand on it. That to me is, just feels like the, the greatest, you know, creative exercise ever. It's like, you know, creative writing, but you don't actually have to write anything. You just sort of – but I'd say that the real joy and what we're hoping to do with more with the show is the just the amount of – content it's generated the amount of ideas the amount of people who have been inspired by it who've sent us artwork you know um you know we're doing this comics well we've got two comic strips that have come out of it you know quantum cop is something that i've been uh, writing with james fosdyke the guy who does all our artwork and i've been loving it and it was funny because just recently uh will's on holiday at the moment and so our producer mike howell put together a best of compilation where he basically wanted to uh, show the audience where a lot of our running jokes or, you know, um, ongoing discussions had come from. So he just grabbed clips from, you know, almost 10 years worth of the show and cut them together to show people. And I was listening to it and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> there is actually like a through line to all this nonsense. Like, there is an overarching narrative to our show, which I guess – you know, I didn't really contemplate because I don't really listen back to the show. Mm. But when you hear it cut together, I imagine that if you're an audience member or someone who listens to our show, there is a narrative that you have built up about Will and I's friendship over the course of eight years. Like, you know how Will feels about certain things and how I feel about certain things. You know what I can say to provoke Will and what Will can say to provoke me. Like, there is quite a dense uh, world within Tofop, like a quite a like a detailed world, and so I just was like, oh, isn't that amazing? Like we have created all of that just by literally recording our conversations, you know. Like, of course, there's some episodes that are a bit more planned than others, you know, when we bring in more of the listener element and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, like, you know, we have just sort of mined our own, mined our our, our friendship and and our discussions to kind of come up with all these kind of things. And I just, I don't know, there's just something about it. I know the podcast that I love listening to, like, you know, the Weekly Planet, you know, I'm a huge fan of. And I really, like, I was listening to that for at least a couple of years before I met you guys. and Which is so great, by the way. I just think that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but, it, but it's funny because, you know, I'd sort of had created this narrative in my head for, for James and Nick and their friendship and, you know, uh, the certain kind of in-jokes that they had and stuff. And I'd never stopped for one second to apply it to my own podcast (laughs) because, you know, I kind of felt like the Weekly Planet's structured and it makes sense and, you know, it just seems so much more professional than what we do. Um, Oh, God. And then then listening to what Mike Hall had done is like, oh, no, there is kind of like a loose structure to our shows. Like there are certain tropes and things that come back. And, you know, like podcasting is this sort of strange – 
I, I mean, I would, wouldn't even say new world anymore because it's not that new, but it is an art form within itself. And it's really the art form of conversation, you know, and there's, there's podcasts like The Weekly Planet. Um, there's other ones that I listen to that are so obscure, but I started listening to them six years ago and now I'm in too deep. I know all the personalities on these shows. I know who these guys are or these girls are and I know their relationships and the ins and outs. And so I couldn't possibly recommend them to anyone because they're so niche. Mm. But there's something beautiful about that, you know. It's, it's, it's like you are in on it. People who listen to our show and they get the jokes or they understand, you know, why Clawson and Orson don't rhyme and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Like, yeah, you know, they, they get it. They get it. I love that. Like I just, I just love that there's a community out there who are into our show, you know, because we really had no ambitions for it when we started it. You know, mm. we just thought, look, this is what Will and I do when we get together. It's an accurate representation of what we're like when we get together, when, you know, our friends would throw parties or whatever, we'd get together and Will and I would always end up in the corner somewhere just talking nonsense, trying to make each other laugh, like, you know, yeah. bringing up obscure facts or, or trivia or whatever it is. So, yeah. you know, like whether or not it's a high form of art or entertainment, I don't know, but it is genuine, <laughs> you know, like it, it's it's not manufactured. So yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what I get out of it is like, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day as a musician and we're talking about the creative process and he just talked to me about, I'm not musical at all, but he was saying that, you know, when he's in the studio and he, you know, creates a melody or, or a beat or whatever or something that just works for him, it just is this kind of transcendent experience for him because he doesn't even have to think about it. It, it just, it, it just, everything just comes it's naturally. Effortless. With it. yeah. Effortless. And mm. he said, like, you know, what do you have in your life that's like that? And it's podcasting, you know, like not just my ones, but, you know, when I do this, when, you know, I did the Weekly Planet, I love it. I love sitting down and just chatting with people. I love exploring ideas. I love talking about things that interest me. I love listening to things that interest other people. Like, you know, mm. maybe it's the product of being the youngest in a big family. You know, they were all big talkers. I grew up in a house we're at family dinner, like everyone would have an opinion on something and conversations were very detailed and would cover a range of topics and points of view. And, you know, that's, that's, that's what I love. Mm. Yeah, it's that, it's that art of conversation that seems so in, inconsequential in some ways, but I think is actually one of the fundamental things that moves us forward as humans. You know, I think that it... Definitely. Don't you reckon, especially now in the climate we're living in, yeah. the more that we can talk and listen to other people and really deep dive into what they think about things in a long-form piece, which is what podcasting is, because mm. often we're just listening to sound bites, you know, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a, a tweet from a madman, you know, that yeah. runs the country. And so, yeah, I, I really believe in podcasting and, and I think what you and Will have done is show the incredibleness that is friendship, you know, yeah. and, and let people into a window into that and give them a lot of joy and humour along the way. And it ends up being this kind of funny thing where you've got all these friends that you've never met but they know you so well. I yeah. just, yeah, it's where I feel so lucky to be a part of all of that too so thank you so much and it's a oh, it's, it's great to have you and will 
as part of it all too. So no, no, we're yeah. very happy to be part. We feel like we've we've fallen in with the cool kids. We're very happy to be part of that. We're just like, how lucky are we that like this this network decided to take our stupid show on? <laughs> Can I get that in writing, James and I? Oh, that's very exciting that Charlie Clawson thinks we're the cool kids because we were <laughs> never the cool kids before. So that's right. cool. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank you so much no for that chat. That was so valuable. Even it's a bit selfish just for me <laughs> <laughs> to get some advice. So okay. I really, really appreciate it, Charlie. Anytime, Claire. You've been listening to a podcast called Just Make the Thing with me, Claire Twenty, and Charlie Clawson. For more episodes from TOEFOP, you can head to our website, planetbroadcasting.com, where we've got lots of other great shows dropping every week. For more info on me, you can go to at Claire20 on Instagram, which is my favorite of the social medias, or on Twitter at Mrs. Sunday Movies. And if you would like to listen to the episode with Arlene Clawson, I've put the link in the show notes below. And as always as well, our Care Australia charity campaign protecting vulnerable women throughout the world is still running. So if you haven't donated and want to chuck in a buck uh, for a good cause, I'd highly recommend doing that in the show notes below. And to you out there, if you're making something or wanting to start something, life is short. Get to it. Enough excuses. All right. That's it from me. Until next week. 